Welcome to episode 76 of the Fitness Simplified Podcast. I'm your host, Kim Schlag. On today's episode, I'm joined by fitness and women's health expert, Amanda Thebe. Amanda has a new book coming out this Sunday, which just so happens to be World Menopause Day. Amanda's book is titled Menopocalypse, How I Learned to Thrive During Menopause and How You Can Too. Amanda and I spend some time chatting about some little discussed topics. What is actually happening with your body during menopause? Why is everyone so afraid of HRT? What even is HRT? And how can we build the resilience we need to get through these difficult years? Let's go. Hello there. Hello. Hang on. No video. Let's have a look. There you are. Some lippy on for you. Uh, Thank you. Now I should go put some on for you. Yeah, really, (laughs) really. Right. Oh, I didn't know if we were doing video or not. I think you said we might. So up to you. I I always do video, but I don't necessarily do anything with the video, but sometimes I do. Yeah, that's good. How are you doing? Definite no, then I don't do it. How am I doing? I'm doing good. Had a busy podcasting day. This is podcast three for me today. Oh, I know. It's my third one too, but like on the receiving end, not on the doing end, right? Yeah. Yeah. I was on one this morning and then I recorded one and now this one. I did one yesterday with a woman called Anne-Marie and she's got an Instagram page called Hot Flash Inc. And she's been on Hello Perry. She sometimes does little videos for Hello Perry. She's, um, it was one of my favorite interviews I've done in ages. She's a journalist from Canada who about 13 years decided to move to the United Arab Emirates, lives there as a journalist, freelancing now, and has started a very small but engaging menopause audience. What's her name again? I forgot already. Anne-Marie. And what's her site or her Instagram? Hot Flash Inc. I think, I think like she's a good, she's, she just was really good. Her questions were really good. Like, you know, they were just, it was, a, it was like a really intelligent debate. It wasn't, what's very menopause and what's very, it was like, it was like a, an engaging conversation and it, I just really enjoyed it. So if you're looking for people, I just think she's a good one. And then the other one I did was with Jason Leehart. So I really like, it's the second time I've been on his. Have you done anything with him? I haven't. I've listened to his podcast a time or a few, time or two. Mm. yeah I like him too all right my dear I'm gonna hit go here and we'll do it all right let's see I think I'm already recording yeah I am now that I uh my son is helping me with my podcast now and so I can start recording he trims things for me now so he handles all of my publishing for me you just all the editing Oh, that's great. Yeah. My son, my son just does it for me because he's very interested in doing this like after college. And so he's practicing on me. Do you pay him? No, not right now. What I told him is that I'm paying him by giving him experience. He's never done anything like this. And what I told him is like, as he gets his experience, like I would eventually pay him right when he knows what he's doing. And then I can introduce him to lots of, I have like, I know tons of other coaches who will eventually need to yeah. like help with their podcast. So yeah. So he's yeah, I used to, I used to do that guy in Ireland. I did somebody on Upwork and used to send the files off. I wasn't going to do it myself. Yeah. I've always so done it myself. I've always done it myself. I have hired somebody to transcribe my podcast for me. Yeah. So I can put him on my website and he could do full blown everything for me, but I didn't want to put the money there quite yet. 
but he's transcribing and then my kiddo is handling everything else now. So I'm glad that's off my plate. Like I don't have to do anything. So I have my youngest has got, he's discovered photography and he, I'm quite a good photographer. Like, uh, you know, I've done, my kiddo's doing that too. He's photography. See, so he's doing, like, I've got this big piece going out in the um, Telegraph in the UK, big broadsheet paper. And, uh, and I'm, and they asked me to wear a yellow dress, which you've seen on Instagram that I got from Amazon for $25. And my friend told me to get, cause she said, Oh, it's really nice. And it'll do for when you're swimming, you can throw it over the top. Right. It's like a, if it's something I wouldn't normally wear. Why do um, they want you to wear a specific thing? They, well, it's a publication, a, a, pub, a colored publication. It's in their Sunday magazine. And so they mm. like want to style it, right? I've got their own stylist contacting me. because, and, and then they were like saying, but we need full res photos. And so Elan and I went out. So he's there with my SLR against this really nice background. And I'm like, it's so funny that in this really great newspaper it's going to be a 25 dollars amazon dress shot by my 13 year old that's so great <laughs> that's fantastic that's fantastic it's very real all right okay right i'm good to go all right here we go today my very first fitness simplified three-timer amanda thebe amanda is a fitness and women's health expert and today i have her on in conjunction with the release of her new book menopocalypse how i learned to thrive during menopause and how you can too welcome amanda it's not the threesome i wanted <laughs> but it's the threesome i'll take i no, mean Dave, you tell someone what you would have preferred <laughs> it's not what I, but we'll run with it <laughs> So that's an, honor, that's an honor, three times three times. Your show. Yes, it's because we've got so much in common. And what people don't know is outside of us talking on this, there's probably almost a daily chat that we I have know. about everything. And um, we have an app on our phone called Marco Polo, which you, if you haven't used before, is really good fun. And we send little videos to each other. It's um, a lot of fun. It's a lot a, of fun. We talk all the time. Today, we're going to get into this book of yours, which I love. I love it because it is both educational, right? So like, what is going on with our bodies and why, and what do we need to know about it? But it's also solution space. Like this is no picnic. I'm going through menopause. It is no picnic, but there's so much we can do to manage our symptoms. And you really dive into that. And I think that's so important, right? It's education. And now what do I do? <laughs> what do I actually do? Um, we have an entire episode. It is episode 21 of my podcast, which is so fun. Cause I'm on episode, I think this is like 75 and you are on episode like 21 your whole story of your experience in menopause, but I do want to touch on it here. So kind of give us the highlights of your experience in menopause. Well, I'll simply put, the reason I wrote this book was um, because the answers weren't getting, I wasn't getting answers to any of my questions. Like you, I had a really terrible time. I'm 49, like almost 50 next month, this month, even it's October, isn't it? Almost 50. And from my early 40s had just the most horrendous symptoms with no answers from any of the medical professionals that I saw. Um, and eventually two years into the journey when I did get answers, I really struggled to find definitive reasons why I was feeling the way I was feeling because mm -hmm. it never stays the same. It's not static, is it? I mean, I went to my gynecologist about a particular symptom of perimenopause once I understood what it was. Um, and then I had something else six months later. Like it just, you, it's so difficult to stay on top of because things ebb and flow. And, um, and so I just really found it difficult to find 
really useful practical information. There is now, there's more now, I might say, because this is eight years ago. And I think there's, we're talking about it more and more. But that was the other part of wanting to write about it. And also like in my community groups and on my Facebook and Instagram page, I, I make it an okay topic to talk about like you do because it's been tabooed for so long. And, and mm -hmm. you know, it's one of those eye-rolling topics that people, you say menopause and everyone like slowly walks out the room backwards. <laughs> and my family it's do actually. True, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So like everything in the health and fitness space, menopause discussions can get overcomplicated. Just this morning, I saw you liked a comment I had made in a group. There's so many menopause groups and, and Amanda and I are both in one specific one. And a woman had wrote in talking about how she wanted to balance her hormones with her diet. And I had asked a couple of questions. I said, well, what are you actually looking to do? Like, what is the result you want? Because people were telling her all kinds of things. And I said, you know, you don't have to worry about, you're not trying to balance your hormones. Like you should go see a doctor. It sounded like she had digestive issues. Somebody came in after me and started telling her about how she needs to like focus on eating phytoestrogens, really complicated stuff. And I was like, what you just said could be summed up with eat a well-rounded, balanced, nutritious diet. And if you're having digestive issues, that's a separate problem. But so many things are made into like confusing issues. And right? what's, yeah, and that's always our, I think that's why we align so well because we're always like, why are people making this so complicated? when more often than not, the answers are quite simple, not always easy, but usually quite simple. Um, that post, I'm glad you brought it up because the person who commented was telling her how she could basically manage everything through diet and health and nutrition. And, and I disagree with that. I disagree completely with that. I think they play a huge important role, but they're not always the answer and neither are taking herbs and neither are doing alternative sometimes it's just not enough and you need to go and see a menopause specialist and as far as the phytoestrogen argument and the, any seed cycling and all of that type of thing it comes from the fact that some foods have phytoestrogen phytoestrogen properties but an estrogen, a phytoestrogen property can be an estrogen disruptor. It can actually be an anti-estrogen food as well as an estrogen food. And, and who knows how it's going to act in the body. And the studies that I found, and I did really try and dig deep into this, right? I did try and look into if this was an actual thing, because we know that Asian women have less symptomatic time in perimenopause, but genes play a massive part. Yes right? So you've got the genetic factor. And, um, and then as far as the phytoestrogens, like in the soy, tofu, etc., cetera, um, the quantities you would have to absorb to make any type of significant impact are going to be like unobtainable. Un un Yet these foods are good for us and they're healthy for us. So there's no reason not to include them. It's yeah. just they're not the magic pill. And it's just another way to confuse and bamboozle women who are already confused and bamboozled. <laughs> Absolutely. At a time when there's just so much going on emotionally with us and physically with us. And so it, it is really, um, it's a dicey space. And so let's talk a little bit, um, you know, and clear up some myths. So let's talk specifically for a minute about HRT. Now, before I do this, I want everybody out there listening to know that neither Amanda nor I are doctors. Um, this is just education. Uh, information for you to keep in mind because this um, topic has become so muddled. So Amanda, HRT, what is it and why is everyone so suspicious of it? Um, 
HRT is hormone replacement therapy. And for a woman with a uterus, uh, a womb, I don't know what you call it here. I always flip-flop between the two. For a woman with a, a uterus, that's um, estrogen supplemented with a progesterone. The progesterone is to um, protect your womb. If you don't have a, a uterus anymore, if that's been removed, you can go on estrogen therapy only. In 2002, there was the uh, Women's Health Institute released a report. It was rushed out um, into publication without being peer reviewed. Um, and it came out and said that um, estrogen therapy estrogen therapy alone, so it was without the progesterone, but estrogen therapy alone could cause um, serious um, diseases in women, including cardiovascular problems and breast cancer. And so um, immediately, and at the time they were only testing Premarin, which was a synthetic estrogen that was the only one on the market. It's actually the best, most well-researched hormone out there. So it's actually one that's you know pretty robust in its research, actually. And, but the, it was pulled off the shelves and doctors refused to prescribe it. And so it left women who'd been taking it like in this place where they were struggling with menopausal symptoms and they weren't being treated by their doctors. Um, it's since then um, that the reports um, largely been um, revoked and, and, and some of the people who were part of the study have spoken out and said it was rushed and it's not accurate. And so the bottom line is now we know that hormone replacement therapy does not cause breast cancer. Estrogen is not a carcinogenic. It will not cause cancer. There'll be some women that maybe can't take it because they have estrogen positive um, breast cancer, but there's some women that can as well, right? And so like you say, we're not doctors and it's not our place to say who can and can't. I would suggest reading Estrogen Matters by Dr. Avram Blooming. And then Dr. Carol Tavares, it talks about all of this and then go and see your, your doctor and speak to the specialist. But the North American Menopause Society and most global menopause societies um, suggest that hormone replacement therapy is the first line treatment for menopause symptoms. So when you go to your doctor and you are presenting with symptoms, um, that should be what is offered to you. And uh, it's, what usually happens is you're denied or given an antidepressant, something because usually doctors aren't, um, probably if they're no fault of their own, but they're, they're not um, educated in menopause management. We, we know this to be fact. Um, it's not included in any of their training. And um, OBGYNs, who are the people we think should be our like go to only 20% of those in their fellowship do any type of menopause management. So it's, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a gray area and a lot of women get dismissed, unfortunately, but there are some resources. And I know you talk about them where women can go and find a menopause specialist. Yeah, I've absolutely, I've, I've talked in here before about the NAMS website, go to the North American Menopause Society website. They have a provider finder. It's not extensive. I will say I've looked for myself and there are five in my area um, three are not too far away, so I will you know, be, be heading that way. So it's not like there are tons of these people around, but there are enough that you're going to be able to find somebody in a reasonable distance, and it's going to be worth it because you don't want to have you know, the experience I've shared here where my doctor said, no, she would not give me hormone replacement therapy because I had still had my period, and um, it had not been a year yet, and it didn't matter that I wasn't sleeping and had the whole list of symptoms. And I, luckily, I knew enough to push back, but I think a lot of us would not. A lot of people wouldn't know because they just show up to the doctor and they're not well, and they think the doctor is going to give them the right treatment, right? Why would we? <laughs> why would we think otherwise? 
And, you know, in my book, I talk about the different tests and stuff that need to be done depending on your age. If you're, but if you're um, under the age of 40 and you think you may be in perimenopause, you need to have blood work done to a certain, you know, where you are. And they most likely can put you on a low dose birth control pill or hormone replacement therapy then. But if you're over the age of 45 and you're presenting with one or more symptoms it you can be diagnosed based on your symptoms because it's a fact that you're going to be in and this is this is what the governing bodies are suggesting but still women are being dismissed and you know i know you want to talk about this but in that lapse of time between the 2002 um, whi study going out where women were left stranded this was the like the perfect storm for alternative practitioners and private health clinics to jump out and say, oh, we can fill the gap with you with these custom-made bioidentical hormones that are better than Premarin anyway because you know, that's a synthetic and we, and we can help you. And to me, that sounds super appealing. Women are desperate. They need help, but it's not the true story. And, and what we know about compounded pharmacies producing hormones is this they use drugs that are the same as the ones that you would get from your doctor but they change the environment so they mix them with sawdust and baby talc or, or, or something along those lines <laughs> who knows <laughs> into, what into like yeah exactly who knows what changing the variables immediately making them lose any sort of safety and efficacy that's been adhered to by the FDA protocols, putting yourself at risk that you you literally don't know, you know, can happen. For, for example, there is a huge concern by the medical community that if you take estrogen um, therapy and a progesterone in the form of a cream, that the progesterone cannot absorb and give you adequate protection against um, uterine cancer. Mm -hmm. It's just not sufficient. And we're seeing cases of this happening. And the latest thing is to get pellets. And, yes. And women are, women are going to their doctor and the doctors are, are, are prescribing these and they're not FDA approved. It's a complete sellout by the medical community. Mm -hmm. These are uh, uber high doses of um, hormones and they have been linked to some cancers. And the bottom line for all of this is that one, you're, you're, you're taking something and putting something in your body that we know hasn't been tested. But two, the cost of these things is up, uh, it's crazy. Like these things can cost you hundreds and hundreds of dollars a month where you can usually get FDA approved hormones that can be bioidentical if you want for a few dollars a month. Well, I just don't get why women do it, but I also so do because the terminology it, there around that, Amanda, it gets a little bit confusing. I know in your motherland, <laughs> the terminology is a little bit more separate, right? So the prescription you get from your doctor is they're calling body identical. That's correct. Right. And correct. then other things out, you'd get outside of that from a compounding pharmacist that would there, that's what they would call body or bioidentical, right? Correct. But it's not but here like that in the here. States. That's not like that to explain to people what would be, what should they be looking for and what should they watch out for? Because it gets really tricky. Oh my gosh. I went down the rabbit hole of this with you and with our friend Katrina Wilk. We tried to find out if there was like standardized language that we could use so that we made this clearer. And there isn't any. And the reason is, is because the term bioidentical, it was a marketing term adopted by these compounded pharmacies to appeal to the natural side of hormones that they were producing. Um, and so what happened is um, drug companies started to produce 
bioidentical hormones, but then went through the FDA approval process and testing process so that they were um, effective and safe for us. Mm. So now we've got bioidentical from a compounding pharmacy and bioidentical from your doctor. And I think that's where the, the confusion um, comes from. So it's easier to think about drugs being unregulated and regulated. Yes. And so um, things like pellets and compounded pharmacy drugs are all unregulated, but you can. Um, and then if you go to a doctor and get a prescription, they will be regulated drugs. That's what you should be asking for regulated hormones. And within the spectrum of regulated hormones, you can have bioidentical and you can have synthetic. Got but it. they're all made in a lab anyway. It's not like you're injecting pure yams into your body. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know. I know. You know? We had this conversation literally last week in my mother's kitchen. So my sister, um, she has Down syndrome. She is 46. She is having menopause symptoms. And my mom and I were talking about, um, my mom was talking about, you know, she bought her this special cooling pillow and, and all of these things. And I was talking to her about my HRT and my mom said, oh, I'm not going to do that for her. That's dangerous. And she said, I am looking into some other medicine that I found um, from like a naturopath. And I said, mom, that's, that's not the route you want to go. That's actually the dangerous. And she wouldn't even listen to me. I said, you know, I think you should make an appointment with the doctor and talk wouldn't even listen. People are very convinced that it's somehow more natural, the things that they could get outside of their doctor's office and natural equals better, better. safer. And in reality, it is not safer. It is the exact opposite. In, in this situation, it definitely most definitely is. And the FDA have actually um, tried to withdraw these products from the market because of the dangers and because of the increase in cancers that they're seeing. I wonder what it will take to actually make that happen. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I think raising, talking about it, having more um, relevant conversations is happening. There is things in the process at the moment, and there are medical um, doctors going to the FDA and speaking out on behalf of regulated um, hormones for women and trying to get them to be a mainstream treatment. Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the key. Mm -hmm. and, I feel sorry for doctors, honestly. I mean, I don't feel like they have our, they're not trying to like cheat us out of treatment. Exactly. I think there's this, there's a, an old stigma against HRT and misinformation. And they then literally have to try and keep on top of every single new study that comes out. Yeah. Like I, I had an incident with my own doctor where he refused me HRT. I wouldn't go until he gave me it. Then he offered me Premarin. I asked for a bioidentical estrogen instead. I knew what I wanted. Um, he then prescribed that to me reluctantly without a, a progesterone. And so then I had to say, you need to give me a progesterone. And he wouldn't give me one. And so I left the office and just said, you know what? Do me a referral to a menopause specialist. I don't feel like you fully understand how to treat my symptoms. And I wasn't rude, but he emailed me later that night and said, oh my God, I had no idea. And yes, you were right. And thank you. And and he gave me a prescription. He just wow. didn't know. And he's a, he was like, he's a young doctor and he really wants to help people. Yeah. And that it comes back to, we need to be able to advocate for ourselves. And so we need to have, we need to arm ourselves with information so that we can have these conversations and make sure that we know what we're talking about when we get there. Exactly. I actually do in the book, I talk about the treatment options that are available. And when it comes to coming to a doctor, I sort of suggest that women do a type of menopause tracker so that you don't just go to the doctor with, I'm depressed or I've got incontinence or I've 
in my joint sick, you actually go in with a full picture of what's been happening so that they can treat you as a whole and not just individual um, symptoms. And so hopefully you'll get the right treatment, but then also how to advocate for yourself when you speak to the doctor. Super, super important stuff. Okay. Turning from HRT, let's talk about, you know, there are so many uncomfortable symptoms that come along with menopause and some are easier to talk about and some are less. And I like, how did you put it in the book? You're like, there are no boundaries in my work. (laughs) And so that's, we're going to kind of push those boundaries of what people might be comfortable hearing about on a podcast today. Let's talk about what happens to women's vaginas during menopause. What are some of the main struggles, Amanda? So it's interesting because when I wrote the book, like, so I've been basically putting my vagina on the line for years now about this because I realized that I needed to separate my personal feelings about it to the actual symptoms that lots of women experience. And I remember writing the book and saying to my husband, I'm going to talk about my vagina a lot in here. And he's like, okay, I just needed to, you know, I needed to know. And, and because it's data, it's information and data and I wanted to be able to write about it in a non-emotional way so that like, and, and, and actually that's a really great way to approach it. Like it, it's just like another part of your body, which is a terrible thing to have to like reframe in your mind. But I mean, if you look at something like Twitter, you can't say the word vagina on there. When Jen Gunter wrote her book, The Vagina Bible last year, she couldn't promote it because of the word vagina. You really can't use that word on Twitter? It may have changed now, but this time last year, you couldn't. It's crazy. I'm going to grab my phone and just try and text Twitter, tweet the word vagina and see if it works. Well, we did, (laughs) didn't we? Because I said I had symptoms falling out of my vagina. Oh, we did. It worked. Yes. Okay. We have vaginaed on um, Twitter. (laughs) I've actually used that word there. Okay. And so, and so when it comes to um, perimenopause, you know, the declining of estrogen in our bodies impacts the, the integrity of our whole vagina. The, the, the term is vaginal atrophy, sometimes referred to as GSM, because it also, um, it's the whole area is impacted. So like your incontinence, even your bowels, everything, that whole area can be um, impacted by the lack of estrogen. So what essentially can happen is... Um, the integrity can sort of degrade a little bit. It's awful talking the way we're going to talk, but it sort of can break down slightly. And so women can find multiple things happen. They may have um, incontinence issues, and that's because the structure and the muscular surroundings of the um, the, sm- the smooth bladder mm-hmm. um, are impacted. Um, the um, women will often have like bad dryness or some tearing unfortunately there's some um, bacterial infections that can happen some women continually have um, UTIs or yeast infections or bacterial infections um, because the pH level in the vagina changes which is why all of those vaginal washes need to be stopped being used because they're trying to like they those are usually quite high acid based and all of the perfumes and stuff that's in there are going to just irritate you even more you don't, you're not supposed to smell like a rose garden down there. I know it's called the lady garden, but it's not like it. And so, and, um, and so all of these things can happen, um, purely down to the, the, the lack of estrogen in that area. And so the problem is, is most women will have this. It's not like just like one or two women. They, they estimate that nearly all women who are older, like through menopause and postmenopause, will have some type of problem that's either 
the UTI, incontinence, painful sex, tearing, and, and some receding tissue too. All of those things are likely to happen and they're all manageable. And that's the problem. Only 20% of women go and seek help because there's nothing more horrifying than going to a crusty old male doctor and saying, my vagina's dry. It hurts when I have sex and, and I'm pissing my pants every time I sneeze. <laughs> it's like, it's a really uncomfortable story. Yeah. yeah. And okay. So women go to the doctor, they say, this is what's happening. What, what is done to help treat them? You know, it's interesting because for the UTIs and the um, vaginal infections, you'll often get prescribed antibiotics. And, and in some cases, that can be a valid treatment. But usually the thing that doctors should prescribe, and again, this is from the North American Menopause Society and other medical bodies, is a localized estrogen cream, which is usually something that even women who can't take HRT for various medical reasons can take because it doesn't get into the body systemically. It stays localized in the vaginal area and usually using that either in a cream version or a suppository version, there's bunches of different ways, is enough to be able to you know, stop those symptoms happening. Some women just by taking hormone replacement therapy that, you know, that helps their whole body, mm-hmm. it's enough to help that area. You know, it was for me, it could just being on a micro dose of estrogen was enough just to, st- I had incontinence so badly and I couldn't work out why, especially after having two kids and still being able to jump on a trampoline. Then all of a sudden I was interesting. So okay, so you didn't have incontinence problems after birth. Okay. I went to a pelvic health physiotherapist, which I think every woman should just get as for free because they're just a godsend. Um I actually I really want to talk about this as well because you know there's the the overall overarching message that if you have incontinence, you just do Kegels. Mm -hmm. And you know, just keep squeezing, just keep squeezing and And it's so individual that I just tell women that really, like, first of all, learn how to do Kegel correctly. I do talk about that in the book. It's a very gentle, gentle exercise, almost like picking up a tissue out of a box. It's not this massive, like, can I hold a dumbbell from a (laughs) chain? There's a woman that does that, right? Like she carries weight. No, there is? Yeah, she's like the vagina lifter or something and she just squats with a... Oh my gosh. But anyway, it's like so gross. But but like my problem was I was hypertonic. I had so much tension in one of my glutes. Nothing to to do with the vagina, but of course it's all connected. Mm -hmm. It was stopping my pelvic floor working as a whole. And when we, what we know about the pelvic floor is that it's a, a combination of the four muscles in our whole trunk. So our diaphragm, our multifidus, which is in the back, and the TVA, the transversus abdominis, which is deep abdominal muscles and the pelvic floor, they all work as a system together. So my sort of like holistic approach to this is estrogen cream or HRT to help with anything that's painful and treatable see pelvic health physiotherapist to check for prolapses, for function, see how that's working. They usually give you exercises mm-hmm. that include those four muscles uh, all working together. And then um, focused breathing. I mean, there's so many benefits to that anyway, but just actually sitting down and doing big, big diaphragmatic breaths help train the body to work the whole um, pelvic floor and those muscles together as a system. And those things are huge and, and they can be game changers, but they're boring. 
Like nobody wants to sit and go, I've got to sit and breathe. Well, I know, but usually the things that do as good are, are those types of exercises. We're always trying to sell the boring stuff here, Amanda. <laughs> so, you know, I, know. I, actually, I interviewed um, Dr. Chandra Ross. She's a pelvic floor physiotherapist. She helped us on our Plank article. I like her. Such yeah. A, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. so I will link that here, everyone listening. Um, the whole episode is about what is it like to visit a pelvic floor therapist? Like what happens? Like what will they do? Because, you know, if feels a little bit like what, what's going to happen at this appointment. And she walks us through it and she talks about why Kegels aren't necessarily the answer for all different kinds of incontinence and how they like, in Amanda's case, they might even be making it worse, uh, you know, that Kegels aren't necessarily what you need to be doing. So I will link that um, at the end of this so you can make sure you go back and kind of delve deeper into the, into the world of pelvic floor physiotherapy. I agree. I think it's a great thing for women to do and I need to take my own advice and actually go see one. <laughs> yeah. um, I have not. I, I, I do. I do think that there, um, I mean, in France, when you've had a baby in Europe, it's so great. You get all of this postnatal care and it includes a pelvic health physiotherapist. Mm -hmm. I thought it was interesting, Amanda, in, in the book, you were talking about how your own experience, you became, began to realize that your incontinence was moving with your cycle. And I have the same experience. So when I lift heavy, I sometimes pee when I deadlift and sometimes it's not that much and I'm just used to it. And other times it's shocking how much I'm, I want to pee and like I have, to, I have to work hard not to. And it kind of would come and go. And it took me a while to realize that it was related to my cycle. Yeah, it definitely is. I mean, I knew when I was, uh, my cycles were very erratic, but I sort of knew when it was going to happen, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so to get by, I would wear a tampon before I went for a run or before I deadlifted because it created enough, like, uh, I don't know if it was like feedback or something. And I mentioned this to the pelvic health physiotherapist. She said, yeah, it's like that tactile, like it knows to sort of hold it in place, but yeah, you don't have to suffer in silence. And, and the problem is if it's left untreated, it can get so much worse. There's a, there's a, um, a disease called lichen sclerosis. Um, and many women get misdiagnosed for having this, but apparently it's really prevalent in postmenopausal women. And again, it's, it's treatable, but anybody who has vaginal atrophy, it's never going away. It's one of those symptoms that stays with you. So you can't ignore it. Definitely do not ignore it, but everybody wants to, right? Because nobody wants to think about that. Nobody wants to talk about that. Nobody wants to think about that. All right. We're, ladies, everybody think about your vagina for a minute and how it's doing. Okay. If you're so that chapter I was telling Kim yesterday, I am in our Marco Polo sessions that when I wrote the book, I wanted to call it, um, let's not beat about the bush. <laughs> I thought that that was really funny. And my editor who completely understood me was tech emailing me back and forth saying, but isn't the bush just the front? Aren't you talking about the whole thing front and back? It was really funny. It so. would have been still been funny. <laughs> anyway, so let's not beat about the bush. Look after right. your vagina. Yeah. Yes. Look after it. All right. So the second half of the book, you cover four hacks that people can use to really, as you put, as the title of the book says, thrive in menopause. So let's kind of just hit the highlights of a couple of them. And then we're going to really hit that last one hard. Um, so the first one, how to eat. What do you think people get wrong about nutrition in menopause? Oh, well, I mean, we know 80% of women are going to put weight on. And so they put weight on and then go, what is the quickest way I can lose weight? I mean, you are the expert on this. You see this all the time. What can I do quickly now mm -hmm. to lose weight? And so they'll look for this magic pill that doesn't exist. 
And that's what I think is one of the biggest issues out there. What I do in the first part of the book is talk about some of the barriers that make it more difficult through menopause. And we, I'm sure you spoke about those, um, you know, just the, just the fact that, you know, we have, um, oh gosh, there's so many, but like, just like we become more insulin sensitive. We have, you know, we have to look out for our cortisol levels, which are intrinsically um, connected to estrogen. Although there's no like, specific data on that is it that's it's not quite it's not a quantitative thing it's just you have to manage stress right um we know that um fat deposits shift from our hips to our bellies so we may change shape as well and that can be stressful for women gi issues the worst sort of shape shifting yeah i know i know the like um bloating is another thing that like sort of lots of women see with uh, with gi issues and even our even our hunger hormones are impacted slightly by um, perimenopause, like our um, ghrelin and leptin. So telling us when we're hungry and when we're full, they become a little bit skewed as well. And so it, to lose weight is always going to be the same answer. I don't need to repeat what you tell everyone all the time, right? But the barriers are ha harder. Absolutely. Right? All and those hurdles you just mentioned, we have to figure out how do we work with them. How do we work with them? There was a, a report came out only three days ago and I haven't looked into it too much, but it sort of um, indicated that um, the menopause transition, which is perimenopause, sees more women put weight on then significantly and that we see a quicker decline in um, lean body mass through perimenopause. Um, and that was really interesting to me because it sort of felt like that to me, but I couldn't find any concrete data. And I don't know how concrete that one is. But essentially, if you're a higher risk of putting fat on and a higher risk of losing muscle mass, that's like a lose-lose situation. <laughs> so you need to do the things to make that a win-win. And um, so when I talk about nutrition, I always talk about before I talk about what to eat, I always talk about the how to eat. And, and I've, it's worked for me. And I think that changing behaviors and habits is definitely the way for long-term success. Well, we know it is anyway. <laughs> it's been yeah. proven so many times. So I get people to cue into um, real hunger cues. Are you really hungry? Um, and if you are, how much to eat? When do you feel satisfied? When is enough enough? how quickly to eat and all, and all of those things. And I give you tools to help you. I was on another podcast and I gave this story about my Nana. She's not alive anymore. We used to call her funny Nana because she'd laugh so hard her teeth would fall out. And, <laughs> and she, I used to always watch when she ate because we'd go out for these family meals and she was this tiny little woman, but she never was like, like worried about her weight, but she would eat really, really slowly. And she never ate very much. Actually, my brother used to sit next to her so you could eat the leftovers. But like, so she never ate very much. And she ate really slowly. So we'd all finished and she was still eating. And she would always leave something on the plate and put a knife and fork down and go, oh, that was sufficient. <laughs> and they were always her words. And mm. I just was like, that's actually a really great example of how to eat. Yeah. She ate slowly. She felt nourished. She stopped when she had enough. And because the ghrelin and leptin signals are a little bit skewed, you sort of have to retrain. Like you've retrained your pelvic floor, you now need to sort of retrain your body what all of those things feel like. That's so I, I really- Well put, well put yeah. there, Amanda. And you started to allude to this with that study you were just talking about. Um, in the, so the next part, how to move. Why is it important to move well in menopause? And you, you started talking there about losing muscle. So that's definitely one of the reasons. Yeah, I mean, sarcopenia happens. It's an age-related 
um, phenomena and actually a movement related phenomena like sedentary people obviously struggle with it more um, and it's sort of rapidly um, accelerated in in menopause and so we need to do everything we can do to maintain lean body mass and I've experienced the soft squishiness as well and I've pulled it back you know it's possible you have to we we can help women to show that it's you can still build muscle as you age it might take longer and there's maybe things you need to really focus on like protein consumption for one because our muscle protein synthesis which is the ability to break down proteins in order to build muscle is also impeded slightly so we have to really focus on getting protein into our diet and then the other flip side of the building lean muscle is that it's been shown to help with the vasomotor symptoms which are hot flashes night flash night flashes <laughs> that's me <laughs> night sweats and cold sweats like anything that impacts your temperature and, and actually i've never had them that's, which is interesting. Remember you saying that. Yeah, you know, I think this is a fascinating piece of information. And I know um, it, 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 was, it was pretty strong data that suggests that, you know, hot flashes, night sweats are lessened with the more lean you are, right? So the more lean muscle you have, the better chance you have of not having, um, I don't know, of not having them or having fewer vasomotor, vasomotor symptoms. And I often wonder like, wow, if I wasn't doing what I'm doing, would I just be one big hot flash? Because I've had such a massive struggle with them. Yeah, I know. But, you know, like we say, genetics play a huge part in all of this, of course. Um, the, one of the studies was on postmenopausal women who'd never lifted weights before. And they were pure cardio bunnies and they split the group into strength training and cardio only and the strength training postmenopausal women and hot flashes are the one of the symptoms that can stay with us they don't necessarily go like women in the 80s still have them mm -hmm. um reduced by 50 percent so Massive. it's it, I, and as far as i'm concerned i'm like well what have you got to lose like you yeah. know like it's like well, because there are so many other benefits we already know anyway right and so if this is another additional one you know yeah. Why not? And so in the book, I do a 12-week program. Just It's like an entry-level program, but I also show people how to pimp it up if they want to work a bit harder as well. Pimp it up. <laughs> pimp it up. Pimp it up. <laughs> okay, next one. Uh, next hack is how to manage stress. Such a problem in menopause. Why, why do you think that is? Why are we dealing with so much stress? I think a lot of people right now are probably like, well, hello, Kim. I can tell you 12 reasons I'm dealing with stress. Oh my God. Yeah. And the rest, and I don't think I can probably hit on them all because, you yeah. know, I mean, we're in a pandemic for one. I mean, there's that oh, and all yeah. of the, the knock-on effects of that. But I mean, so first of all, women probably can't cope with stresses as well as they could be fourth during perimenopause because uh, as I said to you, the, our cortisol is intrinsically linked with estrogen and as that fluctuates and declines, you can see your stress hormones just go crazy. And if you're then stressing your body more by over-dieting and over-exercising as well, you know, you just add in more stress to stress. Mm -hmm. um, and so it really becomes important to just change the way you look at how you 
function as a whole. I know that was a really big shift for me. So being someone who exercised most days of the week, like maybe four strength training sessions and three runs, you know, that was always like my thing. I had to pull right back and I had to pull right back in an intelligent way so that I still could actively work out and, and be efficient and get the, do the best for my body, but also support it with adequate rest and recovery. And that became key. And you're really good at promoting that because of your get up, get up. Yeah. <laughs> because one of, we know one of the benefits of getting up and going out and walking is stress management. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the other things you talk about, which is something I'm at truly terrible at, is meditation. That's been a big part of stress management for you, right? Oh, I don't do it well. But the, but medita- but, but the thing is meditation. So meditation can look different for everyone. And that's what I've learned. And meditation literally, well, well I talk really more about mindfulness and mindfulness. That's the word I'm looking for. Is yeah. And so mindfulness is a little bit different to meditation because you can use meditation as part of your mindfulness training, but mindfulness training is about bringing everything back to the present and being, um, in the moment as we are right now. And you don't have to meditate to do that. You could do that on one of your walks. I go outside and sit and have a cup of coffee on my own every day and just be Fantastic. and just be quiet, drink the coffee, enjoy it. And every time a thought comes to my head, I sort of like acknowledge it, let it go. And so uh, some people find meditation actually easy to do. I'm a little bit like, if I do that, I'm like, oh, what am I making for dinner? And you know, I get a bit squirrely. <laughs> Whereas I find if I'm doing something like drinking coffee, that takes the squirreliness away. And so, but mindfulness is not just some like woo woo alternative, right? <laughs> like we know from MRI scans that change, you can actually change the structure of your brain by doing mindfulness practice. So tell and us so, about some of the mindfulness practices that you use or that you've heard of others using. Like what are some things people can try to do to be more mindful? Well, I think, um, I mean, we were talking about stress initially and so like stress management, mindfulness is like one of the things you can do and it's sort of all integrated to me. And so like diaphragmatic breathing to me is one way to reduce um, as part of a stress management program. We know that when you do big, deep belly breaths, which essentially then contracts and releases the diaphragm, that it it elicits the parasympathetic nervous system. And so you it gets rid of that fight or flight. I mean, if you're in perimenopause and you are literally constantly being chased by that tiger down the street, which is like what I say in the book, you need ways to be able to pull back and and get your heart rate back down. And so a breathing, um, a breathing diaphragmatic breath could, could work. And I do like, I um, promote box breathing. There's so many different ways of doing it, but I like the idea of like three breaths in, hold for three breaths, out for three breaths, hold that for three breaths and continue in that box shape. And you know, I'm all doing a box if you don't <laughs> see me. Um, um, then the meditation is another method going out for walks. What, as we said, walks are just a great way of doing it. Some people can meditate by doing like going swimming or going out on their bike. You know, it can be a moving meditation and it can still be very valid. But the whole point is, is that when you get these thoughts, and especially if you're prone to anxiety, where you're worrying about all of the stuff that potentially can come ahead and you're, you're bringing it back to the present and you're like, well, what can I control right now? And what can I do to get through this situation that's causing me stress and anxiety? 
Yeah. So re- and re- reframing those situations, which isn't easy to do in the moment, but it works, right? I have a son who is on the autism spectrum. He has, has Asperger's and one of the key characteristics of Asperger's is anxiety because he's an overthinker. They have these massive brains that just can't stop working. And so he's always wondering like when the next failure is going to happen. It's terrible really. And so in his, in his years of therapy, he's learned that he, in cognitive behavioral therapy is another great way to sort of like access this through a, a licensed professional. He's learned that taking these this time out to do deep breaths and bring things back to the present and just reframing the question that was causing him anxiety to, you know, what can I control? It's all been like, they, it works for him. He's like a completely different person, but it Mm -hmm. takes time and practice and all of those things. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that's kind of, sometimes it's overwhelming. Like whenever I hear like, okay, you should be more mindful. I think I'm too busy. (laughs) Like I'm just too busy. Yeah. We're, and we menopausal women are, I keep saying this, we're like the ultimate role runners would never, right? never stop. There's so much going on, but I do think it's something worth prioritizing. I have on my, on my uh, horizon to consider, I, I interviewed a woman a few days ago. I haven't even put the podcast out yet. She runs an organization called 99 Walks. Um, I'd never heard of her before, but she's on a mission to get a million women walking. And so it's this big walking community of women. Anyway, one of the things she does in this group is walking meditations. And I was like, what is that? She's like, it's literally what it sounds like. You know, we go on walks and then we have meditations playing while we do it. And I was like, hmm, maybe that's something I could do because I'm already walking, right? And I I think I could possibly try that um, because I do feel like being present in the moment is not something that is a a great skill of mine because like a lot of people our age range, I've got kids, I've got parents, I've got a job, I've got the home. Like it's just so much going on. Yeah. And I mean, I know you use your walks to call your clients and to catch up on videos and stuff. And so you're, you're really good at multitasking, but there's Something that happens in perimenopause, I think we need to really acknowledge. And, and I think especially it's, it, become, it became really clear to me now I'm in menopause and stuff started to calm down, is how we need to prioritize ourselves. I talk about it in the book, how we, we move from the, me, the we to me phenomena. And it's been written about many times where, you know, our, um, our connections to our families and stuff are all changing all the time. You know, we may become empty nesters. We may be in that squeeze generation, divorce. I don't know, like there's so much going on. Um, and, and we, and we then, there's a shift that happens and it's part of the hormonal changes because, oxytocin is that how you say it? i always get mixed yeah. up with that and the drug all right you know like oxycontin they sound yeah. the same to me same <laughs> <I'm> like, <thing. laughs> oxytocin our oxytocin yeah. declines and it's like a bond a bonding hormone and it we're, we're natural nurturers and carers and a shift happens and we start thinking what would happen if like i put myself first today it's not selfish. It's almost self-preservation, I think. And I think we need to like encourage that more in women and say to them, what would happen if you said to your kid, get your own bloody lunch. You can make a sandwich. Yeah. I'm going to sit outside on my own for five minutes. I love I that, Amanda. I think that's yeah. fantastic. I think that's fantastic. And that kind of leads into this next um, section of yours. And you're talking about how to think. And one of the sections you talk in there about is about building resilience. And I think that's such an important quality for us to focus on, particularly now. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So the, the, the final hack, the final um, part of the um, book, number four, is, is all about building a resiliency mindset. 
It's not something I've made up. I worked with a psychologist on this who's a really good friend of mine and we'd have these really deep, long conversations. And I just found that what she was saying just made so much sense to me. Um, and two of the things, as well as talking about a mindfulness practice and how you can sort of incorporate that and how it can actually change how the brain operates and thinks, we, I talk about um, looking at your values and your strengths your strengths. And so these are actual uh, psychological tools that are used. They're not just like me making two things up. And so um, basically as we, I wanted to do this and I really wanted to do this because I got so tired of hearing women being so down on themselves, Kim, you know, like saying, I can't do this or I'm too old for that. Or I hate myself. I hate the way I look. I can't stand my wrinkles and all of these really negative messages. And I'm not asking people to be like, like, uber positive and be that annoying grindy woman that's like always like woo woo look at me I'm so brilliant I'm just sort of saying look at yourself and stop being so down on yourself you know there's that thought monster that's always in our head and we have to like replace it with some positive outlooks and so um, there's two things I recommend women do the first one is um, a values test and if you go to valuecenter.com, I think everyone should do this. And values change. And so I did mine about three years ago and I redid them. And actually mine were pretty much the same, actually. And the things that came out top for me and my values were people, passion, nurture, health, and excitement. So it looks for these, the values. Now, values aren't goals. These are like things that you want to achieve, like things that make you want to live your life fuller. So like, I, and it's true, like my, like people and my family, I want my family obviously first. Um, and everything I do centers around that. And I'm passionate and I love excitement. So all of these things, it really summed me up well. And I think that that probably won't change so much um but what you can do when you understand what your values are is you can start changing things to suit those values and that's the whole purpose of it and then the next one is um your strengths and this is something i really liked because most women don't value themselves at this time and um, for a whole number of reasons um but um I encourage them to focus on their strong points, their strengths. Um, and so if you go to viacharacter.com or via, I don't know, V-I-A character.com, these are your qualities. These are things that come naturally to you. And that's the whole point of this. And then what it's suggesting is that when you have these strengths, that you use them to your advantage and you use them to forge forward. So for example, my, my mind came out in this order. I had curiosity first, kindness, social intelligence, um, humor, and creativity. Um, I knew I had a high social intelligence score and probably a low intellectual score. <laughs> I'm just joking. But like I knew that because I'd done that test before, but I was very surprised that my top strength was curiosity it really was like really that's my top and not humor or not social intelligence but the definition of that is taking an interest in ongoing experiences that you find fascinating so fascinating subjects and then exploring and discovering them so that basically is like me going down my menopause rabbit hole and I think yeah. that that's like you it's probably going to be similar to you well I did um, my test last night Amanda my daughter and there's a teenage version of it too and so we did it together my top one was appreciation of beauty and excellence oh my gosh and is that do you feel like that's 
Well, we were kind of talking about it and I said, I guess I am, because you know, it says it's noticing and appreciating beauty, excellence, or skilled performance in various domains of life from nature to art. And I am a person, we were talking, I'm like, it's true. Like I do buy flowers for the house every week. And I'm always the person to be like, like, stop guys. Like look at the pretty sunset. Like that is me. Like that's what I do. Or, you know, I get, and I really do find energy from those kinds of Well, so that's the point. It feeds your soul, right? Yeah. It feeds your soul. And that's what this thing encourages you to do. I thought it was a really interesting test. I thought that was very interesting. So for sure, listeners, go and give that a try. Say it again. It's via- Character. Viacharacter.com. It was really easy to do. I think it's .org .org. for that one. .org, yeah. It was a really interesting thing to do. What a great thing for us to be, you know, conversing about, because I think at this age, the women that I meet with, the women who contact me, they really are kind of struggling to find themselves and figure out like, where is my place? What is going on? Like, I'm busy. I'm a mom. And, you know, they've kind of gotten to this point where they're not really sure what the next step is, or is this it? <laughs> kind of like, is this it? And so I love the idea of figuring out like, what am I good at? What are my strengths? Because I still have a whole lot of life to build here with these strengths. And it's interesting as well. So I talk about those four things together, the, the nutrition, the exercise, the stress management, which comes with sleep, and then this resiliency mindset. Because I do believe that when you talk about menopause you need to look at everything together and how it looks but what you just said there is the story I hear all the time and it really makes me quite sad but it's understandable as well but I also talk in the book about the u-curve of happiness and the u-curve of happiness I think is worth sort of something like to end on and it's what we know from the, and it, I think it's somebody out of Stanford University. I actually can't remember right now. Sorry. Otherwise, I'd hat tip them. Is that if you think of a U, um, the age around menopause, we've, we're in the bottom of that U curve. We're in the doldrums and, you know, we're like hanging out there. And it's probably what they consider to be one of our lowest, happiest times. But as you enter your um, mid 50s and going up to 60s, we start climbing up that happiness curve and we see people being the happiest that they've ever been, the most content and satisfied with their life. And so I'm now out of, I'm not, I'm 50 as I said, but like I'm out of the worst of menopause and the, sh- the mental shift has been huge for me because most of my symptoms were neurological and m- the mental health side. And coming out of the other side has been a game changer for me. It's not to say I want to have other symptoms. I'm not suggesting that, but I sort of want to give a glimmer of light at the end of the tunnel, the menopause tunnel. That it just doesn't lead to continued darkness. Because when you're in that... Some, and you felt it too. You're like, is this how it's always going to be? Is, is, this, is my character now changed? Is this my new personality? And it's, it's actually quite hard to even think that it could lift. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Amanda, this has been a fantastic conversation. Everyone listening know that the things that we have just discussed here, we've like just barely got the tip of the iceberg. Each of these subjects are covered in depth in Amanda's book, Menapocalypse. Amanda, when is the book going to be available? It comes out... World Menopause Day, which is October 18th, and it's available for pre-order now if you wanted to get it. All right. So get your copies. And Amanda, where can everyone find you? So if you were to head to my website, Fit and Chips, which is F-I-T-N-C-H-I-P-S, Fit and Chips, um, you can get access to my menopause community there, my Instagram, Facebook, and also there's a link there to my books 
and you can, you know, it, it tells you globally where you can buy the books. Um, I definitely recommend if you can support in your local bookshop or buying independently. Amazon's definitely where I'm going to get most of my sales, but if I can push a, a small business, then I would like to do that. Oh, that's, I can. that's a great idea. Or you guys could just find Amanda, head to Texas and listen for a British accent. <laughs> All right. <laughs> too funny. Thanks so much for being here, Amanda. Thanks for having me on again. Three timer. Woo woo. Three timer. <laughs> Thanks so much for being here and listening in to the Fitness Simplified podcast today. I hope you found it educational, motivational, inspirational, all the kinds of ational. <laughs> if you enjoyed it, if you found value in it, it would mean so much to me if you would go ahead and leave a rating and review on whatever platform you are listening to this on. It really does help to get this podcast to other people. Thanks so much. <laughs>